Here in the power of Christ I stand. This is what this passage is all about. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 is what we're reading today. So if you'll turn there if you would, this is what Deemer's preaching from. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand and one of our men will get you a Bible. We have a couple of young men in the front here who are requesting a Bible, so... Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. And again, as Deemer mentioned last week, this is a very familiar passage. And don't let the familiarity of the passage keep you from listening closely as we read it and praying for God to make it fresh in your heart. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and we make supplication. We pray, Lord, for Pastor Deemer as he comes and brings an exposition of this word. We ask, Lord, that you'd use him. Lord, that you'd speak through him by means of your word. And Lord, that you would empower him to say what you want him to say. And Lord, to close his mouth when you don't want him to speak. God, I pray that you'd be exalted as we hear this message. It's so tempting at the end of a message to say, wow, he did a great job. Lord, let us walk away from here saying, wow. Your word is amazing. So God, I pray that you'd use Deemer this morning. Help us to be good listeners. Use us as well. And Lord, may your word go forth and may it not return void. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, For those of you who uh, heeded my request last Sunday to pray for me, thank you for praying for me. As I mentioned last week, every time I come to preach the word of God, uh, it's, it's, it's tough in the days leading up to the sermon. I believe that spiritual warfare does go on when I, am, when I am preparing for messages, when I'm praying through what God wants me to say to you. And, and when I realized I was going to be preaching on spiritual warfare, I kind of approached it even with a little bit more nervousness and trepidation, wondering, you know, what was, what was going to happen? What kind of distractions were going to come my way? And, 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 the, and these these messages have been more difficult than normal to, uh, to prepare. And that's not surprising because the powers and principalities don't want you to hear what the Word of God says. And these forces don't want you to think about Ephesians chapter 6 and what it means for you. And uh, so keep praying for me. And I've got one more. This is going to be like a three-part message on spiritual warfare. We did part one last week, part two today. Christmas, we're going to step away briefly, and Steve's going to give a a Christmas message, and then for the new year, we're going to come back and we're going to wrap up Ephesians. Now, as we've seen over the course of the past several months going through the book of Ephesians, there's this overall theme, there's this overall um, 
uh, focus of the Apostle Paul. And one of the major themes is a unity that God is bringing to the world through the gospel. He's uniting all things in Christ. He is building this unity through tearing down walls of division. God, through the gospel, is tearing down dividing walls. He's tearing down dividing walls between God and man. He is tearing down walls that divide races from one another. He's destroying the division between husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves. And the perfect, peaceful, harmonious community that was destroyed as a result of Adam's sin is through Christ being renewed. Through Christ, it's being recreated. People who were dead in sin, Ephesians 2. People who were slaves of the devil, people who were at war with other people, are now being brought to life in Christ. And as I mentioned last week, God is not just interested in saving persons. He's interested in saving a people. God is building a new community, a new society for himself, and that community is called the church. So in this, this, so this new community, this church, is filled with men and women and boys and girls who have been redeemed by Jesus, who have been adopted into the family of God, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. And now together, not in isolation from one another, but in community, we are to be growing more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That sort of language is an echo of Genesis chapter 2. Adam was created in the image and likeness of God and that, that image was twisted That image was marred due to sin. But now in Christ, God is recreating a people with a renewed and restored image that will truly be like God in righteousness and holiness. It would be fantastic if Paul would have just ended the book right there and would have just said, now that's great, now go on and live your life and just enjoy this new life, enjoy this new community. It's going to be smooth sailing from there. It would be nice if Paul would have ended on that note, but that's not what Paul does. After spending several chapters talking about this beautiful, wonderful new society that God is building, after showing us what that society looks like in day-to-day life, in church life, in relationships, in the family, after all of that, he drops a bomb on us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In other words, as we try to live out Ephesians 4 through 6, as we try to speak the truth in love, as we try to forgive one another, as Paul talks about, as husbands try to love their wives as Christ loves the church, as wives try to to submit to their husbands' leadership and respect their husbands, as we as a as we as a church community try to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called to, as Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 4, we can expect resistance, we can expect opposition, we can expect war. Satan And the demonic powers absolutely hate this new community that the Lord is building because the last thing he wants is a community full of people renewed and recreated in the likeness of God, imaging Christ to the world. Satan hates Jesus Christ, which means the more you look like Jesus, the bigger the target is on your back. The more you look like Christ, the fiercer the opposition is going to be. So Paul warns you, 
that you are up against beings that are not flesh and blood, that are not human, that are stronger than you, that are smarter than you, that are more cunning than you, that are more powerful than you. And these demonic powers are doing everything that they can to stop you from putting on the new self and living out Ephesians 4 through 6. And the reason why they're trying to stop you is because they're trying to stop Christ. And they're trying to prevent his glory from being manifested in you as you live in a way that shows the world what Jesus is like. Excuse me. Now, if you missed last week's sermon, I want to encourage you to go to the website, church's website, and check it out. We've got all the sermons posted on there. I spent a lot of time talking about verses 10 through 13 and why the devil is waging war against us and how the strength of the Lord gives us reason not to fear the devil. But I want to move on now to the armor of God. And uh, we're going to look at a couple of pieces of the armor today. And then uh, for the New Year's sermon, we'll finish up and look at the other pieces of the armor. The devil has declared war on the church. And yet Paul tells us that we are not without resources. We are not without gear. We're not without equipment We have defenses and we have weapons in this spiritual war, and in the strength of the Lord, we can emerge victorious. Paul tells us that the primary purpose of this armor is so that we may stand firm, so that we may be able to stand and not fall, and so that we may be protected against the schemes of the devil. As Paul says in verse 11, the schemes of the devil. That word schemes in the the Greek is methodeia. It's where we get our English word method from. It's actually in the plural, methods, methodea. The word carries the idea of craftiness, of cunning, of deception. In fact, the word was often used in ancient literature to describe a a wild animal, a, a beast that is cunningly stalking its prey and pouncing on it unawares, like an ambush. Methodea implies strategy. It implies tactics. And certainly the devil is a master tactician who has had thousands of years to study humanity. He's got a file on you thicker than you can imagine. He knows the ways to bring us down. And if one strategy doesn't work, he's he's got something else. He's got something tailor-made for every one of us. Every single one of you in this room has certain sins, certain weaknesses that you're prone to fall for. Some of you in this room struggle with an unforgiving spirit. Some of you in this room struggle with anger. Some of you struggle with lust and a covetous attitude. Some of you had to fight an attitude of pride, self-righteousness. All of these things and more work against that new community, that new society that God is building. Now, for this reason, God calls the church to beware of the schemes of the devil And so we always have to be alert and on guard and dressed in the full armor of God. So with that said, let's take a look at the different pieces of armor. And uh, and as we do so, let's keep in mind that that Paul's drawing his imagery here from two sources. One source is the equipment of a Roman soldier. As Paul is writing this letter, he is under house arrest. And he may well have been chained to a Roman guard as he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, Whatever the case... Paul would have been quite familiar with Roman armor and Roman gear in a very, very upfront, up close and personal way. However, what sometimes gets overlooked is that Paul's also drawing his imagery from something else. He's also drawing his imagery from the Old Testament. You've got to remember that Paul is a Jew, and before Christ saved him, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the, the Scriptures. He was a man steeped in the Old Testament. He knew the Scriptures forward and backwards. And as we look at the armor of God, we begin to, to recognize some, some Old Testament allusions, some Old Testament imagery that Paul is drawing from. And so, as we go through the pieces of armor, and as we look at some of those Old Testament connections, I think that's going to help us as we unpack Paul's metaphor of armor and see what that means for us. So let's look at the first one. It's right in verse 14. Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The everyday clothes of a, of a Roman, even of a Roman soldier, was a tunic. It, it was, and it was pretty simple. It was just a big square piece of material. And it had a, 
It had three holes. It had one hole up here for the head, and it had a hole here and a hole here for the arms, and you just kind of throw it on. It's pr- pretty simple. You just threw it on at the start of the day, and it was loose-fitting clothes. And, 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 and for that reason, the, the Roman soldier just couldn't go into battle with that tunic just kind of flapping around, flapping in the, in the breeze. Because in battle, somebody could, could easily grab that thing. He could yank it around. He could yank you around. He could pull it over your head. He could do all kinds of things if you get tangled up in those robes and that, that garment. Uh, you just couldn't go into battle with all those loose ends flying around. You could get easily tangled up in the middle of a, of a heated and deadly battle. So the Roman soldier had a belt uh, firmly fastened around his waist so he could gather all those loose ends and tuck everything in. Anything that would ensnare him, he would tuck it into place, tuck it into that belt so that he could be totally free to run and to fight unencumbered, unhindered, without being tangled up, without tripping, without falling flat on his, his face. The idea here is preparedness. Being ready for anything. No soldier goes into battle unprepared with all the loose ends unaccounted for. His tunic just flapping around in the breeze. He would, he would have his belt fastened securely in place and ready to go. Some of you may have uh, translations that talk about uh, instead of a, a belt fastened, it may say having your loins girded. That, that's that's kind of Old Testament phraseology there where you had these folks in the Old Testament, they had these, loin, these, these, uh, these robes on and girding the loins, kind of gathering up the loose ends and kind of tying everything together firmly and securely so your legs were free, so you could, so you could run, so you could travel. The, uh, the belt also held the soldier's sword in place. And when that belt was tightened, it gave that Roman soldier a sense of inner fortitude and strength and confidence. Now, Paul's metaphor of the belt of truth is borrowed from some Old Testament imagery. In particular, Isaiah chapter 11, which talks about King Messiah, who through his truthfulness, through his faithfulness, through his reliability, ushers in a new era. Isaiah 11.5 says of Messiah, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of of his loins. Now when Paul urges us to have that belt of truth securely fastened around his waist, or our waist, what does he mean? Well, he could be talking about the truth of the gospel. He could be talking about sound doctrine. But I don't think that's Paul's primary concern here. Certainly the church must have sound doctrine. But having sound doctrine is not an end of itself. The truth of the Scripture must then affect our everyday life. This is exactly, by the way, the flow in the whole book of Ephesians. He spends chapters 1 through 3 dealing with high theology and doctrine. And then he moves to a deep concern regarding how we are to live in light of that doctrine. And when you consider the imagery of King Messiah in Isaiah 11, we see that this coming Savior has faithfulness as the belt of his loins. Here is a Messiah who rules with integrity. And I think that's Paul's primary concern here in Ephesians 6 with the belt of truth. He's calling the church to be a people of integrity, of faithfulness, of authenticity. In Psalm 51, David says of God, Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. This is integrity. This is authenticity. God is not interested in hypocrisy. He's not interested in a religious sham where we act the right way on the outside, but inside we have all of these undealt with sins. This new community that God is building in the church is not meant to be fake. It's not meant to be phony. It's not meant to be an outward show. God hates that. And when I think of the the importance of truthfulness and authenticity in our Christian life, I'm reminded of a striking passage in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, God is blasting the people of Judah for their sins. And, And it's interesting what... It said, Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 15, listen to what the Lord says. 
What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, said the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is striking what the Lord says to the people. He is rejecting the offerings and the sacrifices of Judah. He is not impressed by their, the observances of their religious feast and their holidays. Not only is he not impressed, but Scripture says he hates these things. Now, there's an irony in this because who is it that asked Judah to bring sacrifices? Who is it that told them to honor the Sabbath? Who is it that appointed to them the various feasts and days that the people were to observe in the first place? God did. God told them to do these things. And yet now God turns around to the people and he says, I've had it. I hate this. Stop it. And, and, and God, God is so repulsed by the people that, that he says these sorts of things. Now why? Isaiah 29 gives us the bigger picture. Isaiah 29, the Lord says that his people honor me with their lips, and yet their hearts are far from me. God has a seething hatred for outward religious conformity. You are living a lie. You are not having truthfulness buckled around your waist, doing and saying the right thing on the outside, perhaps, and yet having hearts that are cold and distant towards God. This was a common problem in Israel, with Israel, by the way. If you follow the Bible, if you follow the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the Jews had a tendency in the Scriptures to slip into inauthentic living. Jesus confronted this over and over again with the Pharisees, who were steeped in all kinds of religious rituals and prayers and outward conformity. Jesus says that these men are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, and yet on the inside are full of dead men's bones. Elsewhere, Jesus says that these people clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty and filthy. God does not want a people like this. God desires truth in the inward being. Paul wants sound doctrine for sure. But he wants the doctrine to be more than just head knowledge, more than just an intellectual exercise. He wants that doctrine to work its way so deep into our inner being that it comes out and it manifests itself in a real authentic walk with Jesus Christ. How many, how many people in churches all across America this morning are like Pharisees or like Judah in the book of Isaiah, a people that honors God with their lips and yet their hearts are far from him? How many people are like that in this room? You say the right things, you go to church every week, you give money in the offering, you talk the right way when people are looking, you may even be involved in ministry. You look great on the outside, but you know, you know that you are living a lie. Your heart is far from God this morning. You lack integrity. That, that belt of truth is not firmly buckled around your waist right now. Well, let me tell you something. And I'm taking my cue here from Isaiah 1. If you are like that this morning, God hates it. I didn't say God hates you. I said, God hates this sham that you were living. He couldn't, care, he, could, he couldn't care less about your church attendance and your offerings and your ministries if it's all fake. And if you are experiencing this right now, I know that you feel distant from God. God tells Judah in Isaiah 1, I won't even listen to your prayers if you are living in this way. 
undealt with sin, this lack of truthfulness and integrity in your life, it can ruin your prayer life. This is, there is a connection between an inauthentic lifestyle and a powerless prayer life. It's not just an Old Testament concept. Scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Walking in hypocrisy, faking it, having undealt with sin in your life, not truly practicing what you preach, is like the Roman soldier going into battle, and he's got all those loose ends just flapping around in the breeze. He's tripping on them. He's getting entangled with them. A person like this is sitting, a sitting duck in spiritual warfare. The author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12:1, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, I actually like the NIV translation a little better than the ESV on this one. The NIV says, let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles. To be a Christian who is not a person of truth and integrity, who says one thing but in his heart is really something different, is like that Roman soldier getting entangled and tripped up by loose ends because his belt was not firmly secure. Paul is telling us that we need to be a people of truthfulness, of reliability, of integrity. That we are not just to proclaim the gospel, but that we are to be a gospel-shaped people. We are to be a people that images Christ. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is truthful. Jesus is reliable. He is a person of integrity. There is no conflict between what he says and how he really is on the inside. And if the church is to image Christ rightly, that is how we are to be, to have truth in the inward parts, in the inward being. That that we are on the inside, what we are on the inside matches what's on the outside, and then we will be ready to fight. Otherwise, you can become quite paralyzed in your Christian walk. There was a time in my own life, my own Christian walk, where I went through a period of serious hypocrisy. It was not like I had abandoned the gospel or forsook Christ or anything like that, but rather it was a period where I just kind of went through the motions of Christianity while just having a lot of junk and garbage in my heart at the same time. Undealt with stuff, ignored stuff, not fully broken, not fully repentant, and my conscience was tormented during that time. I was paralyzed. I couldn't encourage people to break free from sins because I wasn't fighting it too hard in my own life, you know? I always wondered what would happen if people knew what was really going on in my heart, and that led to paranoia and a fear of being exposed as a hypocrite. It was truly miserable. I was tangled up in all of that mess, rendered powerless and impotent in my Christian walk. I didn't have the sense of strength and confidence and inner fortitude like that Roman soldier who has that belt firmly fastened and secured tightly in place. I didn't feel that way spiritually. At all these loose ends flapping around in the breeze, distracting me, tripping me up, and hindering me, and I felt like I couldn't truly live and experience all the joy that there was to be had in the Christian life because I did not have my belt firmly in place, fastened securely. I like what Legan Duncan says. Pastor Legan Duncan. He says, what is one of the first things that Satan attempts to do to you to break you down? To convince you that you are a hypocrite. That you say one thing, but you believe another. That you say one thing, but you do another. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you understand what your great weapon is against against that temptation of Satan, against that device of Satan, against that accusation of Satan. It is to have the truth so rooted in your inward parts that you are on the outside what you are on the inside. So that when you hear Satan say to you, though you know that it is true of you sometimes because we're sinners, you know that ultimately it's a lie. Because of the grace of God at work in you, you have more and more become a person who is on the outside which you are on the inside. Authenticity, integrity, And the Apostle Paul says that that's absolutely necessary in order to resist the assaults of Satan because Satan doesn't use bullets, he doesn't use guns, he doesn't use cannons or bombs, he attacks your conscience and he attempts to break it down. Now if you struggle here, before you do anything else, you have got to come clean 
and shed the duplicity and protect yourself by having that belt of truth firmly fastened around your waist, or else you are a sitting duck for Satan. Let's look at the next piece. It's also in verse 14. After he talks about fastening on the belt of truth, he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And again, Paul draws from Old Testament imagery that is depicting God as a man of war. Isaiah 59 verse 17 says, God puts on righteousness as a breastplate. And now Paul tells us in Ephesians to, like God, put on righteousness as a breastplate. The Roman breastplate was a a large piece of leather, bronze, or chain mail that covered both the back and the front of the soldier from his neck down to his thighs. It protected the vital organs. It was an essential piece of armor. No one could go into battle without it. And in the spiritual battles, our breastplate is righteousness. Now, the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth are similar. They go hand in hand. But the emphasis on either one is slightly different. Whereas the belt of truth emphasizes truth in the inner being and how it should match what one professes outwardly, the breastplate of righteousness appears to emphasize a genuine outward expression of what is already true in the inward being. A righteous, holy lifestyle is a major theme throughout the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 through 3, we are given doctrinal truth. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul says, Therefore, in light of these truths, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, the truth of Ephesians 1 through 3 should affect your lifestyle. And again, I draw your attention to Ephesians 4, 24, where Paul urges us to put on the new self. Notice, by the way, the similar language there. Ephesians 6, Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. In Ephesians 4.24, Paul tells us to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. There's that word again, and holiness. Or, you see this theme in other parts of Ephesians, be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children. Or, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Or, in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see a pattern there? There There's this constant beating of the drum by Paul for Christians to live righteously. And not just to live righteously, but to live in such a manner that it points to the righteousness, to the holiness of God. To live in a way that rightly images God. That's why Paul says, he doesn't say husbands love your wives because it's the nice thing to do. He says husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. Your righteousness shows something about Christ. Paul says that this type of righteous life is like armor protecting your vital organs. It's as if Paul is saying that you will die on the battlefield without this piece of armor. When I think of the importance of the breastplate of righteousness, I always think of King David. When David, I think about when David succumbed to temptation and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. You know, when you are tempted to sin, when I am tempted to sin, we we never really clearly think through the possible consequences of our sin, do we? David sure didn't. We never think about the devastating effect that our lies, our anger, our pride, our adultery, our pornography may have down the road. We never think about the effects of those things later on down the road. You see, this is one of the devil's schemes, one of his methods. He, he overplays the potential benefits you will get from engaging in a sinful act, and he downplays the consequences. He does this every time. Did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden, Eve? You shall not surely die. The devil has been using this scheme from the very beginning, overplaying the benefits and downplaying the consequences. All you can think about is how good it will feel to spew out your anger towards that person. All you can think about is how easy it will be to get out of that uncomfortable situation if you tell that lie. All you can think about is the rush of excitement you'll get when you click on that mouse button and you go to a website to look at things that you know that you should not be looking at. And what is happening at that moment as you dwell on those things? 
Well, what's happening is, is that the devil is beckoning you to take off that breastplate. Take off that protection. It will be fine. Just relax. No one's going to get hurt. Take a break. You deserve this. And all the while, the devil is beckoning you to come closer with one hand, while with his other hand, he has a knife behind his back, ready to thrust that dagger into your hearts. And sometimes the wounds caused by our sins run so much deeper than we ever would have thought. And the healing takes longer than we ever would have thought. And sometimes even after the healing, there's a scar. This is exactly what happened to King David. He removed the breastplate of righteousness. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murdered her husband. He engaged in lies and a web of deceit. He covered everything up. And because he was unprotected, the devil plunged a dagger right into David's heart. David got what he wanted. And because of that, he entered into a period of time that must have been the most miserable time of his life. Not only did he remove that breastplate of righteousness, but in the days afterwards, as he covered things up, that belt of truth was not firmly in place either. He was a hypocrite. His conscience was tortured. He was living a double life. Maybe you're living a double life. And you understand and know the agony and the torment torment and conscience that comes with that. David in Psalm 32 describes the misery of living with undealt with sin. He says in Psalm 32, for when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Miserable. Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of confession and repentance, he asked God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. So there was internal anguish and torment, and there was also a lack of joy that needed to be restored. He had a joyless life during this period where the breastplate was off, where the belt wasn't firmly secured in place. Now David was forgiven. David was restored. But the ramifications of his sin affected him and his family and his children all the days of his life. And all because for just one moment, just one moment, he removed that breastplate. And all it took was a moment, and the devil pounced on him. This is spiritual. This spiritual battle is serious, guys. It's nothing to trifle with. You don't mess around with sin, and you don't mess around with Satan. Now, David's situation was a negative illustration of the importance of the breastplate of righteousness. Let me give you a positive one from another Bible character, Joseph in Genesis. You remember Joseph? He was sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. He ends up in the house of Potiphar as a slave, and he begins to be tempted by Potiphar's wife to engage in adultery. It's a powerful temptation, surely. No one would ever know. Potiphar himself wasn't home very often, There are all kinds of ways that Joseph could have justified this sin. This isn't going to hurt anyone. Besides, she is an authority over me, and I should just go along with what she says and not cause any trouble. Besides, maybe if I gain her favor, perhaps she'll set me free one day. And yet, what does Joseph do? He has already put on his breastplate of righteousness, and he says in Genesis 39, he says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Are you crazy, woman? Joseph is not interested in seeing how far he can go without getting burned. And that, by the way, is the attitude of too many people in the church. We always want to know how far we can go. We always want to know how close to that line can we get. We always do that sort of thing. And instead of asking how far can we go, let's put on the breastplate of righteousness by saying, how pure can we stay? That's the question we should be asking. Not how far can we go, but how pure can we stay? Once we start approaching our life from that perspective, we are protecting ourselves from the schemes of the devil. We are putting on that breastplate of righteousness. Now, as we we close, I, I recognize that all this talk of integrity, all this talk of truth, this talk of living a righteous life, can be really depressing, can be really a downer, depending on what's going on in your life right now. It can be depressing because you feel like you're just failing here. You are living a life of hypocrisy. 
You are struggling with having truth in the inward being. You are in despair because you've not had that breastplate firmly in place, and you feel wounded and condemned. And the only thoughts that are going through your head right now are accusatory, self-condemning thoughts about your own sin. You need to recognize this morning that if you are truly a Christian, then even when you have sinned, even when you have failed, even after the devil has knocked you down in spiritual warfare, you need to recognize you are not ultimately destroyed. This is not the end of you. If you are a believer who struggles with sin, you need to recognize that even though you have not been reliable and faithful, even though you have struggled with hypocrisy, even though you may have sinned on the way to church this morning, there is a holy warrior who does not treat you like you treat him. Even when you are faithless towards him, Jesus is 100% faithful towards you. Faithfulness is the belt of his loins, the scripture says. Jesus will never leave or forsake his people. Jesus will be with his people always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says that he's the good shepherd and his sheep will never perish. No one, not even the wicked powers and principalities, can snatch you out of his hand. Jesus says in John chapter 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, if we failed, and if we sinned, and then Jesus turns to us and says, You're done. I cast you out. I'm leaving you. Then Jesus would be a hypocrite like you. Like me. But Paul reminds us in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Period. So be encouraged this morning. Second, maybe you feel like you've lately thrown away that breastplate of righteousness, and maybe you feel eaten up inside like David in Psalm 32. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as if by the heat of summer. And maybe like David revealed in Psalm 51, you've lost the joy of your salvation and it needs to be restored this morning. You know that, you know, God has called you to live a righteous life, but we are not saved by our works. You need to recognize that. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we are saved unto good works. We're not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And maybe you've not been doing those works. You're not an imitator of God. You're not speaking the truth in love. You're not forgiving others as Christ forgave you. You're not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. You're not honoring your parents. You're dropping the ball on so many of these Ephesians 4 through 6 exhortations. If that's you, I urge you to repent this morning. It is not over for you even if you feel like it's over. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. Oh, there's that word again, faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need to recognize this morning that the righteousness that is providing you with ultimate protection, talking about the breastplate of righteousness and protection, you need to recognize the righteousness that is providing you with ultimate protection is not your own righteousness at the end of the day. The whole point of the gospel is that there is one who's already been perfectly righteous for us. There is one who does Ephesians 4 through 6 perfectly. Jesus always speaks the truth in love, even though you don't. Jesus forgives, even though you don't. Jesus loves his bride perfectly 100% of the time, even though you don't. Jesus is the perfect son who always obeys his father all the time, even though we don't. Jesus is everything that we could not be. And the good news of the gospel tells us that when we receive Christ, we are, and we are united to him by faith, his righteousness is imputed to us. And so when God looks at us, he sees us clothed with Christ's righteousness, which gives us the most significant protection we need, which is protection from, against the devil's accusations and protection from the wrath of God. There's a very striking passage in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah has this vision and you have Joshua, the high priest, who is a, he's a sinner. He's filthy. And yet he's supposed to represent his people. And the devil's right there accusing. Listen to this. This is Zechariah 3, 
Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. There's the devil right there accusing. That's his job. That's what he does. The Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. Now what's the point here? Was Satan's accusations false? Was Satan lying about Zechariah's sin? Was he just making up stuff? I'm sorry, Joshua's sin? Was he lying about Joshua's sin? No. The devil wasn't making anything up. The scripture says that Joshua's clothes were filthy. The devil was right. The devil had accusations that were real and valid against Joshua. Joshua was unrighteous. Joshua was filthy. But, but, the, but the point is that the devil's accusations have no power over the one whom God is determined to make clean. And so we have this imagery of, of Jeremiah having these disgusting excrement-covered clothes removed from him, and he has new, fresh clothes put on him. So now Joshua is viewed as clean and righteous, but it is not a righteousness of his own. Joshua, rather, is covered with a righteousness with clothes that did not belong to him, but belonged to God. Now, if you are in Christ this morning, you need to recognize that as the devil accuses you of all kinds of sins... And if you're like me, there is a laundry list of sins. You need to remember, you need to remember Zechariah chapter 3, and you need to remember that in response to the devil's accusations against you, the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord has chosen Steve. The Lord has chosen Peter. The Lord has, has chosen Warren. The Lord has chosen Francis. The Lord has chosen these people. The Lord has chosen Deemer. Are they not brands plucked from the fire? And God has taken you, and He has taken me, and He has removed our filthy clothes, and He has clothed us with new garments, the righteousness of Christ. So I urge you this morning to not despair, to not lose hope, and to not give up. You can rise up this morning. You can be like David in Psalm 51. You can confess your sins. You can repent and rest assured of God's forgiveness. And you can rise up. You can put that armor back on. And you can take your stand once again against the devil amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ who are standing with you. If that's what you need to do this morning, do not leave this building before you repent. Do business with God this morning and fulfill your highest purpose to glorify God by being an image bearer, a true image bearer. And you do that by walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now we're going to have a response time in the moment. And during that time, you can give your offering up here. You can turn in your prayer request. But I also urge you to pray in response to the word that was preached this morning. If you want to pray with someone, you can grab me, you can grab Steve or another believer, and pray with them. We'll be happy to do that. And finally, I want to remind you that the armor of God is for believers only. If you're here this morning, and if you do not truly know Christ as Lord and Savior, you are defenseless against the devil's accusations. And in, in fact, Paul in Ephesians 2 says you are a slave of the devil. If you sense this morning that your spirit is awakening to the things of God, then I implore you now to believe and receive Jesus. Join God's army and become his newest foot soldier for the winning side. Receive forgiveness of sin and let the righteousness of Christ be yours right now. And if you want to know more about how to have peace with God, you can come and see me or Steve or another believer here and, and we'd be more than happy. We'd be thrilled to talk with you further about this good news. Let's pray together. Father, even though Satan 
prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Thank you that you have not left us defenseless. You have given us resources. You have given us equipment. Most importantly, you have given us yourself. And most importantly, you have given us your righteousness. Father God, I pray for anybody in this room who has been struggling with truthfulness and with integrity. Perhaps there are those this morning who they don't have that belt of truth firmly secured around their waist and maybe they come here on Sunday morning and they say the right things and they they act good and they act all holy like everything's okay and yet in the inside they are rotten and their hearts are far from God. Father, I pray right now that you would help that person or those persons, Father. I pray that you would help them to have that belt firmly buckled around their waist so that there is integrity, so that there is a correlation between the inside and the outside, Father. Let us not be a people of hypocrisy. Let not Harbin's church be a fake and phony sham, Father. Let us be real. Let us be authentic. People of truthfulness and integrity. Not perfect people but people who are moving forward more and more into Christ-likeness. And Father, I pray that you would help us to put on that breastplate of righteousness. We all deal with various temptations, Father. In the next few minutes even, I'm sure that the devil will come at us with various temptations. Oh, Father, help us to to be like Joseph who said, Oh, how can I do this sin against the Lord? This is so wicked. I will not do this. Help us to have that same kind of abhorrent, disgusting attitude towards sin. And Father, thank you so much that when we do fail and when we do fall, we are still clothed with the righteousness of Christ and the accusations of the devil bounce off of us. And we know that our destiny is not wrath and hell, but life in heaven forever with you. Father, thank you for your goodness. And thank you for your mercy. And thank you that you have plucked us from the fire and have made us a part of this people, this society, this community that you are building. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.